Hey y'all, welcome to Bay Wide, a show all about the Chesapeake Bay. Today's headline, our nation's river, the Potomac River, just had a report come out about its health. Things are looking good. Also, our main story for the day, Ken Island, will take a look at the history behind the largest island in the Chesapeake Bay and the straight-up drama that ensued between Virginia and Maryland. I'm your host, Bert, and you can let me know what topics you care about by tweeting me at Bert Bay Wide. Thanks for being a listener and indulging my passion, the Chesapeake Bay. Let's get it rolling. So if you were to give the Potomac River a letter grade, what letter grade would you give it? Go ahead and think about it for a second. A, B, C, D? Well, I have a feeling that a lot of you probably went with D, maybe even E. But guess what, motherfuckers? Potomac River just got its report card and the news is quite good. It got a grade of a B, the river's highest grade yet. Yeah, just one decade ago, the Potomac Conservancy, a nonprofit that does this rating system, gave the Potomac River a grade of a D. This year, it received the B, though. What happened? What changed? Oh, man. It's a reduction. And if you know anything, it's like the top three culprits. There's a reduction in all three. That's right. Say it with me. Nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment, they're all down. So the fish and wildlife are resurging. The American shad and the bald eagles are returning to the region's water. And you know what else is happening? People are returning to the river because everyone used to be like, nah, man, I ain't touching that. But there's been tons of development uh, in Southeast. There's the wharf going up, tons of new hotels, tons of new apartment complexes. And people are like, ah, man, it would be really nice if the Potomac River was cleaner and not just like our nation's dumpster diving. So 10 years ago, river activities like paddling and boating, they just weren't popular on the Potomac River because there was such high levels of pollution. The surface of the water was always like covered in algae, especially in the summer, just was not something that smelled nice or that you wanted to recreate anywhere near. You even have like a walking trail along it. People weren't interested in it. But as you know, as of like 2010, there's been a pollution diet that all the states have adopted and they are gung-ho about it. The EPA has been calling it the total maximum daily load. And in that amount of time, the nitrogen and phosphorus has gone down. So it's gone down just enough where people are like, oh, there's not crazy algae blooms right here. I kind of want to go out on the water. And so that's basically a snowball effect where now people start to care about the Potomac River. So they want to clean it up even more. Everything just gets a little bit better and a little bit better. And look at that. In just a decade, we go from a D to a B. It can happen, folks. The environment can, I'm not going to say it can be saved, but it can totally be improved. This week marks the first segment I'm calling Island Time, where I take a quick dive into one of the 40 islands that are in a Chesapeake Bay. I needed an easy win this week, so let's go with the largest island the bay has, and that's Ken Island, in all 31.62 square miles of majesty. You know, many people think that Ken Island is a misnomer. It doesn't really seem like an island, per se, as you're driving across Route 50. It's the first speck of land you hit after crossing the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, or as it's actually called, the William Preston Jr. Memorial Bridge. Most of us just call it the bridge. But next time you drive around there, look for Kent Narrows, and that's the bridge that you cross to get to the mainland of the eastern shore after you've been driving in Kent Island for about 10 minutes or so. Kent Island has been around since the inception of the Chesapeake Bay, and the bay was formed about 10 to 12,000 years ago after the glaciers melted, the Susquehanna River overflowed, and it formed Chesapeake Bay. Lo and behold, Kent Island was there too, and ever since Kent Island existed, it has been inhabited. 
The very first people to live there were the Mattapique Indians, and they were the primary tribe that were there. But there was also the Ozini and the Monoponson tribe. These were all Algonquin members, and Chesapeake is an Algonquin word, if you recall. Algonquins pretty much ran the area, besides having to occasionally watch out for the Susquehannocks, the warring tribe of the north who would come down on their really fast birch log canoes that we talked about last week, and they would raid all the tribes in the bay. Most of the Native Americans on the island lived in the southeastern side that was overlooking Eastern Bay. They did a ton of fishing in that area. There's a lot of oyster bars out there, too. So it was pretty primo spot as far as that goes. There was also a good bit of cultivation of the land itself and farming practice underway. But all good things must come to an end. And in 1627, the governor of Virginia gave William Claiborne permission to settle and create an Indian trading post. You might recognize the name William Claiborne. He was one of the early settlers of Jamestown, and he was actually a surveyor there. But he had worked his way up the ranks and became a Secretary of State for Virginia by the time he was told he could go forth and make an Indian trading post. Now, even though Jamestown had been around for 20 years at this point, it was not what you would call a sustainable venture. So trading truck for fur or food was the norm. Truck was kind of a catch-all term Englishmen would use for random goods that they would trade to the Indians. It could be axes, knives, belts, beads, cloth, pretty much anything as long as they could get food or fur in return. So Claiborne was like, listen, Governor, I'll go north and establish a trading center with some other tribes that we don't already have connections with down here in Jamestown. And so Claiborne set forth and he saw Kent Island and the tribes that were there and he said, hey, guys. I'll give you a truckload of stuff that would equal the year's wages of two English farmhands. So that's like 12 pounds of sterling if you give me this island. And the deal was made. A fort was built right on the southern tip of the island known as Fort Kent. And a trading post was established. And Claiborne, being the total sissy that he was, he missed his hometown. So he named the entire island Kent, which is based off of Kent, England, where he was from. Now, there was a fire in the winter of 1631, and that destroyed the fort, but it was quickly rebuilt. In fact, when it was rebuilt, it got a sweet frickin' palisade, a whole wooden wall that enclosed the entire community, which at that point had included a trading station, a grist mill, and a courthouse. Now, the primary tribe that Claiborne was trading with were those warriors up north, the Susquehannocks, which I'm pretty sure the Susquehannocks were just going around stealing stuff from other tribes and then coming straight to Kent Island to sell it to the colonists, but whatever. The colonists totally ate it up and condoned that kind of behavior. The settlement grew to 120 Englishmen plus women and children by 1638, and most everyone had their hand in growing tobacco on the island. But they also built small boats and manufactured wooden barrels. There's another island right to the south of Kent Island. It's called Poplar, and that'll have its own segment later to be determined. But that island was used by the Kent folk basically as a spot for grazing their hogs and growing more crops. Claiborne must have felt pretty boss being the third settlement in what would become the United States. I mean, you had Jamestown, then you had Plymouth, and now Kent Island. Surely Kent Island would go on to become just as famous as those other two places, right? Also, can we really say that it was the third settlement? Because what about Randolph? That failed colony before Jamestown where no one knows what happened to the settlers? Historians just glossed over that. But anyway, technically, we're calling it the third settlement, but I really think it should be called the fourth. Anyway, in 1632, the Calvert family was granted a charter by King Charles I 
to establish a whole new colony known as Maryland. You know, the haven for the Catholics. And the Calverts claim that Kent Island was included in that land grant. Which, I'm not here to pick sides or anything, but it totally was. Anyway, William Claiborne was living the good life. And he was like, no, this island is part of Virginia. Maybe y'all should hustle as hard as you hate. And things got really ugly real fast because newly found Maryland was not having it. They kept coming by the island real slow. And in 1635, there was a series of naval battles. Yeah, that's hella interesting, isn't it? Well, I would love to tell you more, but I cannot find any more depictions of these naval battles. All I know is that there were a few naval battles. But come on, who doesn't write this stuff down? So by 1637, Claiborne was getting pretty tired of all the harassment. And the governor of Virginia was like, uh, dude, maybe you should go back to England and try to get all this straightened out. So Claiborne sailed off to England. Little did he know, Leonard Calvert, the governor of Maryland, had appointed his buddy, Captain George Evelyn, on December 30th, 1637, to be commander of Kent Island and the inhabitants thereof, with the power to elect and choose a council and call a court of courts and to hear and determine all causes and actions whatsoever civil, not exceeding, in damages or demands, the value of 10 pounds sterling, which really just means nothing. I don't know why I had to read that quote to you, but I just want you to know, people wrote some really boring things in the 1600s, like spice that up a little bit. So even though Claiborne was gone, he was halfway across the ocean when George showed up to take over everything. The island inhabitants were still not having it. They were like, uh, no, we're part of Virginia, not Maryland. How do you not get that? So none of them ex- like hesitated to express their contempt and they resisted all the authorities. So much so that it was deemed necessary that the governor, assisted by Captain Thomas Cornwallis, one of the council and a competent armed force, should proceed to the island and reduce its seditious inhabitants by martial law if necessary. So then Governor Calvert in April 1638 appointed this guy named William Brandhoff to be commander of the Isle of Kent in all matters of warfare by sea and land necessary to the resistance of the enemy or suppression of mutinies and insolencies in all matters civil and criminal to exercise the jurisdiction of a justice of peace to hold a court of courts and to hear and determine all causes civil not exceeding in damages or demands to the value of 1,000 weight of tobacco. The only reason I read that entire excerpt from 1638 was so that you would just remember that tobacco was totally the cash crop. Also, it's just kind of silly that there's like, yeah, 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 you have all the power. And then there's like a little disclaimer at the end. It's like, you know, unless like something's worth more than a thousand weight of tobacco. So while all this is happening, Claiborne comes back and he's forced away from the island. They kick him off and he tries coming back a few years later. And lo and behold, they kick him off again. The Marylanders pretty much have a firm foothold in Kent Island at this point. Even the Englishmen of Kent Island are eventually like, all right, all right, I guess we're in Maryland now. Uh, we'll kind of accept your reign. But the Native Americans in the area, they were getting pretty fed up with all the Englishmen coming in and settling. It was getting a little bit out of hand. They were getting a little bit too large. And so the Native Americans started getting a little hostile. And the Englishmen on the island were not doing much to keep that tension at bay. In fact, I don't even know if this might be the time where there's Bloody Point. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but at the southern tip of Ken Island, there is a point of land or really a lighthouse now. It's called Bloody Point. And no one really knows why it's called Bloody Point. But the leading theory is that there was a Native American massacre in the 1600s 
And it was like where a bunch of colonists lured the Native Americans to come to like an interview, but it wasn't an interview. It was literally just so they could have all the rowdy Indians in one spot and just mow them all down. And so that's where a lot of historians think they might have got the term bloody point. But fun fact about bloody point, it's actually the deepest point in the entire state of Maryland and the deepest point in the Chesapeake Bay. It's about 174 feet deep. But anyway, uh, there's some other theories on why it might be called bloody point, but I like the Native American massacre one. I mean, I don't like it. I just think it's a better theory than some other ones I've heard. Okay. Okay. If you must know what the other theories are, here they are. Theory number one. It could just be called bloody point because of the naval battles between Maryland and Virginia over Ken Island. Second theory, a pirate convicted of stealing a small boat and killing the three crew members was executed and his body was hung at bloody point to warn others against such crimes. I'm pretty sure that's just a made-up story and has no bearing. Another story, here we go. That point was a place where slave ships threw ailing captives overboard. The heinous practice has been documented in other places, so could it have occurred in the bay? Question mark. Also, no evidence for that. Like, it's kind of a little bit out of the way. It's not even a good point for that. The other leading theory, and probably the only one that has more credence, is the skipjack and the whole concept of paying somebody off with the boom. And that's when you got a bunch of crew members, you just got a bunch of oysters, you're going back to port, and there's tons of oyster bars right in that area. So anyway, you're going back to port and to sell these oysters. But a lot of times you would just pick up a random crew member from like a bar the night before and just he'd wake up on a boat and you'd be like, yeah, yeah, just work for me for today. We'll get back to port. I'll pay you a bunch of money and we'll just call it even. It's not kidnapping. I just, you know, needed some help today. And then the guy'd be like, yeah, all right. But anyway, right before you'd go back to port, you'd just be like, hey, new guy, can you go up and, you know, do some reefing of that mainsail there real quick? And we're like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then you would jive real quick and you would hit him with the boom, clock him in the head, he'd fall overboard and die. And then it was like, oh, yeah, it's called paying them off with the boom. And that's why it's called Bloody Point because so many skipjack captains did that. I don't know. That's just a fun story. But I still think the Native American massacre has the most credence to being actually based off of something real. The Native Americans had become so hostile by 1641 that the governor actually issued a proclamation that prohibited any person from entertaining or harboring a Native American. And under pain of penalties of martial law, it was unlawful for any inhabitant in the Isle of Kent to shoot, wound, or kill any Indian. Essentially, they were just like, hey, just leave the Native Americans alone. Stop killing them and wounding them, but also, like, stop helping them, and the state of Maryland will deal with it. And I can't really tell you how they dealt with it because I have found no evidence or other depictions of Native Americans in the area since then, but, well, today there aren't any Native Americans in the area. So after all this, Claiborne comes back for the last time in 1658 trying to get back his island, and he then leaves permanently. He, like, just gives up. They won't let him have it. And that effectively ended the dispute between Claiborne and the governor. But Virginia still has an official claim on the island all the way up until 1776. Like, all the way up until they decided to fight in a revolution together, they're like, you guys still have something that belongs to me, Ken Island. I found this book written in 1917 called The History of Kent County, Maryland, 1630 to 1916 by Fred G. E. Sultan. And I just want to read you what this guy wrote because. It's so precious. It's just so precious what he has to say about 
Virginia finally letting go of their dispute with Maryland. Are you ready? Quote, word for word. Quote, the Isle of Kent, the proud but beautiful virgin queen of the Chesapeake, was now joined in the bonds of holy wedlock with Maryland. Changing her state, she also changed her name, and together with all her possession, will hereafter be known as Kent County until irreverent hands carved away with invisible lines her ancient domains and herself, sole relic of the olden time, deprived of her marriage crown, was given as a dowry to the daughter of her elder sister. Little did Fred, our author from 1917, know Kent Island would not be part of Kent County, which will confuse us so much because Kent Island should totally be part of Kent County, but no, they changed it to being part of Talbot County, and then eventually it became part of Queen Anne's County, which was like a new county established in the 1900s. So, whatever. All right, let's fast forward the present times. Until the 19th century, Kent Island was mostly used for farming, tobacco, and corn, but... As you might know, tobacco is extremely intensive on the soil and it depleted all the nutrient-rich soil so that they weren't doing any crop rotations, they had really poor farming practices. So basically, farming became impossible by the early 1800s. So instead, Canal became a major hub for steamboat travel across Chesapeake Bay, kept up with its trading post activities. It was the home of a railroad station known as the Stevensville Train Depot which was at like the western end of the railroad, which carried ferry passengers to other parts of the eastern shore. And during this time, small resorts on the shores of Chesapeake Bay and like ocean were established in the area. So Kent Island really had a nice one in like the northern tip of Kent Island. And then after all the nutrient depleted soil kind of started going through a few generations of not being touched, farming became available as an option again. And then a lot of watermen were in this area and started harvesting the surrounding bay for all the oyster and rockfish bounty. This kept up all the way up until 1952, and that's when the Chesapeake Bay Bridge was built, which connected the Baltimore-Washington metropolitan area. And Ken Island is now listed on the census as being a suburb of the metropolitan area, so it forever changed what Ken Island was. It used to be a very rural place that was hard to get to. Now a lot of people jokingly call it East Glen Burnie, because of how many people have moved there and still commute to Baltimore and D.C., uh, but they just like the slower pace of life. This here concludes our little segment about Kent Island. Yes, the first ever settlement in the state of Maryland, also the third in what would become the United States, and yet no one remembers it for this. Thank you all for listening. If I could ask you, please leave a review so other people can find me. I am still enthralled about how many people are listening, and I appreciate you guys listening. Now, I know I'm in my fourth episode here, so you're starting to expect some consistency. And look at that. I made the deadline I created for myself, which is every other Thursday. So it's Thursday now. I just released this episode. Huh. Don't act like you're not impressed. All right, guys. Thank you so much. In two weeks, that's right, two Thursdays from now, I'll go ahead and release another episode. This one will be a little bit more science-related. And I'm kind of developing that concept as I go along. I just know I'm really tired of doing so much research behind my history ones. So it's time to get back to what I know best, and that is science. All right, thank you guys so much. Have a great one.
All right, everybody, welcome to the end of the episode, The Secret Spot, where I painfully try to explain to you the Chesapeake Bay meme of the week, always trying to make it deal with the topic that we address in the earlier session, which is honestly pretty difficult because I just talked about an island for like 10 minutes. How am I going to make a meme out of this? But you know what? I got one for you guys. Never cease to amaze you or myself, probably. Well, okay, maybe myself. I'm sure you're not that amazed by this. So here we go. It is going to be the why though meme. If you don't know what I'm talking about, let me painfully describe it to you. So it's a painting of Pope Leon X. It's painted by Bernardo Botero. And it basically became a meme because it just looks like this fat child sitting in a chair after your mom just told you that you couldn't have like another Klondike bar or something like that. And this kid is just like, but why though? You know, that feeling that look that you have when you're just like fed up and you're just like, why isn't anything working out for me? And it's just, why though? It's just like a grumpy dude. So here's how the meme is going to go. It's going to have that picture and then right above it, a caption that says, when Lord Calvert says that Ken Island is part of Maryland. And then, you know, you got Claiborne at the bottom just going, why though? 